with that, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 31. The title for this evening's consideration is A Good Riddance. I didn't say good riddance. I started to leave it there, but that was a bit carnal. Uh, A title such as The Death of Saul, it doesn't say nearly enough. So that didn't make it. Uh, This does, I think, capture uh, the mood. Uh, The the tragic thing, uh, to say that about someone when they die, it it is a good riddance. It is a good thing for us. The fact remains. There's no way to get around the story. As you look at the life of Saul when he dies, and you're not going to weep over this. And Well, if you were there and you knew him as David did, there'd be that human element. Uh, Someone can be so abusive of the living that their death is a relief. It's just a fact. It's an improvement for those still living. And God warns us not to rejoice over the fall of an enemy uh, since that quickly turns into something else. It turns into a license going forward if it's not checked to fertilize hatred, and God doesn't want that. In Proverbs 24, verse 17, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Well, that has to be in the context of all Scripture, because you remember when Moses made it through with the people through the sea, and the Egyptians did not, Moses broke out into a song. In Exodus 15, I will celebrate, I will sing to the Lord. <laughs> and, and the women picked up the tambourines and followed Miriam, and, and they were rejoicing that they were delivered. And that delivery, well, that being delivered is more accurate, um, it involved the death of those who were pursuing them. David would go on to grieve this tragic loss of Saul and his sons, his beloved friend Jonathan. And even though Saul was demonically influenced and David's enemy, David um, also rejoiced that the day came when God delivered him from all of his enemies. Psalm 118, the heading to that psalm is to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of Yahweh, who spoke to Yahweh the words of this song on the day that Yahweh delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I will love you, Yahweh, my strength. My point is, we can rejoice in being delivered from an enemy. And Saul was an enemy. And glad he's gone. I wish it were turned out differently. I'm not saying that we should... I hated him anyway. That would be wrong to give in to that. We are not grandstanding because of of this victory, if you, you could, for the righteous. Death is always wrong, and sin has done this to humankind. And so we are... We, we, we check ourselves. We, we do not allow ourselves to, to lose our self-control in this regard. And uh, David struck that delicate balance. We, we call grace. Unfortunately, it's absent in many churchgoers. One fool, this man Saul, took an army of others to their death and their sorrows. He had been bringing sorrow to others. 
And so we do say it is a good riddance. Glad he's gone because otherwise he would stack up more victims because of his cruelty. I'm not going to rejoice over such a thought. Yeehaw! Wish he was still here to kill us all. Of course, that would be absurd, but it makes, hopefully, by sharp contrast, it makes the point. So, uh, there's no hope that he went to hell. That would be hatred. But still, there is relief. And there are some who spend their lives just taking from other people. They are drains on their environment. There are some who give, and there are some who give more than others. There are some who give and take. And there are some who not only take, but ruin every life they get close to in some way. And I think this was Saul. It was a wasted life because he had such potential, such opportunity which he neglected, he abused, and he wasted. And hopefully, we look at a life like this and we say, I'm not going to be that person. God help me to never be this person. Remarkable opportunities are no guarantees of success. We have children that are raised in wonderful homes that demonstrate this oftentimes when they go into rebellion and become prodigal, wasteful with their lives. They uh, don't seem to realize the great opportunities that they have are to bring glory to Christ or to bring success. And uh, it is where the fight uh, is for many of us, and um, it is a fight that is worth it. Well, we look now at verse 31, remembering that's a brief commentary on Saul. We'll hit him again before the night's out. Because this kind of behavior cannot be winked at or ignored or, or just lightly passed over, I think it, it has to really be considered. And once we close this chapter, we'll move on to David and we'll have other uh, struggles. Verse 1, now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Well, Saul had been so distracted over the years, just in his hatred for David, that he neglected his duties as king. And as a result, he left the kingdom ill-prepared for this great Philistine invasion. And the king and his men perished, just like that. How many broken hearts did they leave behind? All because of this one foolish man. Verse 2, Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of uh, Saul's sons. The battle around Saul intensified, the enemy concentrating his forces on Saul. Why? Well, he's still dressed like a king, a lightning rod. I mean, get yourself some camis, man. Why, why, why are you doing this? He wore his crown into battle. We know that because the Amalekites says, see, I got his crown off his body. Yeah, well, first kings, this wasn't, he's not the only foolish king that did this. Well, you know, you think of the British with the red coats, you know, like dressed like a bullseye. And yet, uh, part of their strategy, though they had logic to it, they didn't want their troops to see their own blood. <laughs> Look down and see blood and start running. But uh, anyway, first uh, Kings chapter 22, this is that wicked King Ahab, and he tells uh, that gullible, naive King Jehoshaphat, who was good, he said, we're going into battle. You dress like a king, I'll dress camouflaged. <laughs> I'll dress like one of the common troops. 
And Jehoshaphat said, okay, boss, whatever you say. Uh, 1 Kings 22, verse 31. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot, saying, fight with no one, small or great, but only with the king of Israel, which was Ahab. But Ahab, they couldn't find him, so they surround Jehoshaphat. And they realize, oops, he's the king of Judah. We're really not interested in him. And they go look for Ahab and uh, arrow, uh, archer at a venture, fires an arrow and hits him. Kill, will end up killing him. So I read that to say uh, the kings wore their robes into battle. So it's uh, clearly the Philistines said, if you see Saul, concentrate your attack on him. And that's why it is, has intensified. I don't find much spiritual uh, lessons in this. It's just common sense is missing. Uh, well, it wasn't too common. But anyway, uh, the only son apparently not on the battlefield that day was Ishbosheth. Uh, perhaps he was too young, or perhaps he was in quarantine because he saw a picture of somebody who had a virus and he was not to go anywhere near human beings for 10 years. Anyway, he would, this Ishbosheth would be assassinated seven years later. Uh, verse 3 The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Well, Samuel said this was going to happen. He was going to die on the battlefield with the Philistines. And spiritually, the archers' arrows of this enemy of Saul had hit him all his life. Satan's archers had targeted Saul, and he really did not make an effort to escape them. In contrast to Joseph. I mean, here's Joseph, sold by his brothers who were going to kill him, then they sell him into slavery, and he ends up, of course, uh, in, in, as a slave, and then he's framed for, for a crime he did not commit. He goes to jail. And you would, you would think that he would say, you know, I'm just tired of this religion. It doesn't work for me. And yet he stays true to God. His father recognizes that on his deathbed in front of everyone. And so strong was this prophetic word on Joseph that we have it to this day. It's thousands of years old since these came off the lips of, of Jacob. <clears throat> Genesis 49:23. He said this of Joseph, the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. And then he goes on, but Joseph's bow abode in strength, held by the mighty hand of God. And that didn't happen to Saul. The archers sought him all his life and got him, and he behaved, as his behavior was proof of this. And so this ending in his life, this tragic ending, is just more of the same. This is the physical um, event, but the spiritual event had long been going on. And you look at this and you say as a believer, the archers have sought me too. The believers can say this. Whether it is a temptation, whether it is somebody who is trying to harm you through life or some whatever, sickness, whatever it is, uh, uh, the arrows being fired at you are meant to hurt you. And yet the righteous will prevail. You do read this story, you think of Custer, you know, the last stand, but Saul here, verse 4. Uh, then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword. There's no time for artwork. I'll wait. <laughs> draw your sword. Anyway, <laughs> 
Then the armor bearer <laughs> draw your sword, he says to him, and thrust me through with it. I could keep making jokes, but I'm, I'm not. At least I call them jokes. Lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Well, when Saul says these uncircumcised men, uh, it's, it's not... Saul is not conscious of the covenant of God when he uses that phrase as David would be. When David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He is saying, this is a man that rejects the true God and has fallen for the gods from hell. Saul, it is us versus them. We're Jews, so we are obviously we're of the circumcised kind, and they're not, so they're the uncircumcised. And really, God wasn't in his thoughts. Uh, this is not a you know, covenant moment that he's having. Um, at this point, he's wounded. He, he, he believes, I, I'm not going to survive this. I'm going to die. I can't, at least very easily, kill myself. So he, as typical Saul, hey, why don't you kill me for me? Get uh, the armor bearer to do it. Maybe uh, the story of Israel's first false king, Abimelech, who appointed himself king back in the book of Judges, came to mind. There, Abimelech, the, who appointed himself king, he was a butcher, of a violent man, and, and he attacks a, a city, a walled city, and a woman uh, leans out from the tower and throws a stone and clunks him on his noggin. We pick it up in Judges 9, verse 53, but a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Uh, then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, you know, here's these guys with the artwork again, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed him. So his young man thrust him through and he died. Now, Saul would have had that story. And maybe that is, you know, he thought this was the, the proper way to go out, to have your armor bearer finish you off uh, there on the battlefield. He would have, as all soldiers do, pondered how he would not want to die on the battlefield. And so this wasn't something he just thought up all of a sudden. I mean, he had long ago said, you know, if they get me in battle, I'm not going to let them capture me alive and then torture me. And so this is uh, uh, something that uh, he was ready for. Uh, it may have been that, again, that he thought this was a proper request and not uh, based on Abimelech, the precedents that some people find to be so important. And so he dies um, as, he, as he lived, really, killing himself by playing the fool, more anxious about men than concerned with God. He does not cry out to the Lord as other kings. Jehoshaphat, when he was surrounded, he cries out to the Lord. The Lord delivers him. Saul does not do this. And uh, he's uh, physically, he's going to die, but dead spiritually already. His, his last breath. It was the belated announcement of a death that occurred long ago. It's tragedy, a very big tragedy, and something that I think, okay, so why do you spend so much time with Saul? Because this needs to be preached to unbelievers. It's okay to bring up Saul to them. Just to say, have you ever heard the story of King Saul, Israel's first king, taller than everybody, outstanding but he became a monster because of how he treated God. 
this is so much ammunition in the life of Saul for we believers to not only preach to ourselves, which I hope we do, but also to preach to the believer. And here, looking back, Saul said, I have sinned to David when David spared his life. Return my son, David, for I will harm you no more. Of course, David is saying, right. Because my life is precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Characteristic of Saul. He takes a step in the right direction, and then he turns and takes all the other steps in the wrong direction. It's how he lived before God. Now, if you do tell these stories to non-Christians, you have to keep it tight to salvation and not let it get away and become the moral of the story. It's a message from God. That's what it is. Because what can happen is the unbeliever can hear about the life of Saul. I know a guy just like that. He just, you know, started to do the right thing, and he turns and does the wrong thing. But that unbeliever is detaching it from themselves and, and sin and missing the point or trying to evade it, and that's where we are there to pull him back. And Christ knew he did hit his target when he met the woman at the well. When he said, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband, she tried to change the subject. Oh, I think you're a prophet. And he was easy with her. He, he didn't say, no, wait, let's talk about these five husbands. He lets that fall to the side. But then he continues to minister to her. And what is the effect? She becomes an evangelist. She goes to the village and all the men come out to see this. Come see the man who told me everything. I mean, it's amazing. And they come out and he stays there for a, day, a couple of days. So the lessons that fly off the pages of Scripture are for us. And in spite of whatever failures you may incur, if you plow your field, you will have a harvest. And, or you can just say, I'm not worthy to preach the gospel and just let Satan just gag you. Verse 5, And when his armor bearer saw Saul was dead, he fell on his sword and died with him. You know the wording. It makes him sound so clumsy. Hey, he fell on his sword. And he says, what a fool. Uh, anyway, of course, that's a euphemism for they uh, killed themselves. And, but who lived to tell the story? Well, there are survivors. As the, as the battle is intensifying, there are survivors who are getting away. The armor bearer likely thinks he's not going to get away. The fact that they're using archers at this point indicates the enemy is not close enough for sword-to-sword sword combat. So there's some time, but again, the archer may be in a position like, if I run, they're going to get me in the back, and I don't want that. Uh, then I'll be incapacitated, and they'll torture me. And so that may be some of his logic. Saul here, trying to reconcile this account of his death with the Amalekites account that's mixed with lies. And when we get that next chapter, or first chapter of first Samuel, uh, second Samuel, the Amalekite, uh, he claims that he killed Saul. Well, if that part is accurate, which it, that part of it is probably is, it's because Saul is here passed out. He falls on his sword. He's filled with arrows, or he has arrows in him. Uh, he, he, Kills, falls on his sword, and puts his own, probably props it on the ground and, and impales himself, but he just passes out. And he then comes to later when the Amalekite, who is a battlefield scavenger, is looting the dead and comes across Saul, uh, which is part of history uh, to this day. They are battlefield scavengers. Um, 
So that would account for some of the, how the events are, are taking place. This armor bearer ended his life. Now, if, again, if he's saying, I can't get away and I'd rather do this to myself than let them get me, that's one thing. But if it is out of some sense, misguided sense of loyalty to Saul, then he was a fool too. And Saul did have fools around him and sycophants that just, you know, did whatever he wanted to do. Where's Abner when all of this is going on? Well, he's probably commanding other... There's a large battle, sprawling. It's not just on Mount Gilboa. Uh, Saul likely moved to Mount Gilboa. The higher ground gave you the advantage, the great advantage. It does to this day. Uh, And thinking that this was going to, you know, be a good place to hold off the enemy, and it did not work. So, uh, the Amalekite, he has less regard for life. David will dispatch him. David, first David hears the story, grieves and says, starts to think about it and says, wait a minute. This guy's got some holes in his stories. He's just a murderer. And David kills him. Uh, so we'll get that next session if things go according to plan. Uh, David here, not anywhere near the battlefield, but this is an interesting thing. David had said that one day Saul's going to kill me. But he didn't say it under the anointing. I have noticed that I can tend to not be so accurate about a lot of things when I'm in the pulpit. Not in the pulpit. Oh, catch that one. Not in the pulpit. But when I'm in the pulpit, I just see things that I think that are God-given. And David, of course, God, and you too, you know that. Maybe you've gotten in front of someone and shared the gospel. You say, boy, but God was just there. I could feel the anointing. Well, uh, David, when he made that remark, was not under the anointing. When he wrote his psalms, he was under the anointing. And the simple test is the, 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 the circumstances surrounding, the realities, the truths, the facts, all pile up together to either point upward or outward. And, but David was wrong. Saul did not catch him one day, and Saul did not kill him. And that is not beating up on David. That is identifying with David. Because we get to that place in our own experiences in life where we feel like, you know what, this is just God is not, <laughs> he's not going to shield me. Or he's not going to do this. And it's going to be bad. And, and we just, okay, fine. I just submit one day I'm going to this crash and burn. And that did not happen. Uh, fortunately, it was not a superstitious thing. But we can be superstitious. Watch out for that. If someone wrote me a check for $666, I would cash it and spend it. I would not say, ooh, that's an evil number. I'm not cashing that. <laughs> so if you get a check for $666 and you got that superstition going on, give me the check. And I'll cash it for me. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 66. There's nothing evil about that verse. So watch out for those superstitions. The, the Antichrist has his mark, but there's more to the story than just that number. There is the fact that they get the chip. There's still more to the story. That they willfully worshipped him. That is, there's the, the crime right there. So, I mean, there are humans that have chips in them now. Some have them on their shoulders. And uh, some have them um, barbecued. But anyway, verse 6. So Saul and his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Um, again, they should not have died this death. But they did because of Saul. And this man, Saul, had such an opportunity. Remember, God gave him a, a fresh start in life, gave him a heart to serve. 
He cannot go to heaven and stand before God and say, I deserve heaven because I didn't get a fair shot. First Samuel 10 verse 9. So it was when he turned his back from uh, to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. Uh, opportunities are no guarantees of success if you treat those opportunities as something other than what they are supposed to be. All his men died the same day together, it says here, referring to those troops that made up Saul's unit. It was not the entire army and uh, not all the men on the hill. His immediate guard, more than likely, uh, else we wouldn't have the story as we do. I mentioned Abner, Saul's general, is missing because he is uh, in other parts of the theater fighting. And he will end up promoting Saul's son, Ishbosheth, to king. And again, Ishbosheth will be assassinated. We have a lot of intrigue coming. Verse 7, uh, when we get to 2 Samuel. When, verse 7, when. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So this is an overview with the aftermath built in, not a play by play. But there you see the men on the battlefield in verse 7 are, are fleeing, so they're not all dead. It was a rout, but it was not an absolute slaughter, uh, awful defeat. Hosea, centuries later, makes this comment. Hosea 13, verse 11, speaking to the Jews who were up in the northern kingdom, and almost all of the leaders were apostates and monsters. And so this prophet Hosea of course, speaks to them. He tries to minister to them so gently. He tries to say, you know, I, I had a faith, uh, unfaithful wife, and, and, and this is how you are with God. And he tries to appeal to them. Uh, that, of course, did not work for many of them. And so he, then, then the prophecies turn into straight-out uh, direct prophecy to the nation. Hosea 13, 11, God speaks through him and says, I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. And that is sort of an overview. God saying, fine, you want a king? You don't want a man of God like Samuel, a prophet over you? I'll give you what you want, but I'm not, it's not my first choice. And then uh, he, Saul, of course, his behavior brought the day of judgment, which don't tell the Lord, but I think he is a little slow in judging Saul. Because God is long-suffering, uh, willing that none should perish. And although Saul did not respond, others have. When we get to Manasseh, the, he, Manasseh was king for 55 years, and he was a monster. Even, and he gets converted in the end. Uh, but even after his conversion, he did so much damage that later God said, because Manasseh did this, you, the, you reap what you sow. You're, going to, you're still suffering from his, his evil. So they're very, it's, a real, it's a real life. It's not a, God is not a statistician that says, that says, well, these are the odds. No sense in playing the game. It's like, well, this is what's going to happen, and we're going to play the game. We're going to follow this through. A very serious affair. Uh, so they demanded a king, and they gloried in that king. And his low spiritual character. And God was not first. And so Hosea says just what he says. In my wrath I gave you a king. Because you've got spiritual issues. And if I had not gone that route. It would have been worse for you. 
But in my wrath, I took him away because you really weren't interested in me. And part of the proof of that is that you still have a nation that followed Saul and not David. Verse 8, so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Now, this is looting of the troops, of the looting of the... I mean, guys wore jewelry into combat and, you know, and... uh, once they died, they, it happens to this day. In World War II, if you ambushed a, a German patrol, uh, you were, what's he going to do with his watch? If you don't take it, some Frenchman might get it so, or, or somebody else. So this is, not, um, this is how it is. So what we have here between verses 7 and 8, right between those two verses, are the battlefield scavengers before the troops come and loot. And that's where that Amalekite would have gotten in. He said, I'm not waiting till tomorrow. I got a flashlight. I know about where Saul was, and that's where the good stuff is. And, and he goes there and, and uh, loots. The, you know, the whole families in history, whole families would go out and loot the battlefield. Little kids, women, men. Uh, even in World War II, this was... They would have to send troops to guard the battlefield of the, where the dead were. Well, that's morbid enough. Would you like to hear more? Yeah, I can. So uh, um, we'll get to that, this again in the, chapter, in the first chapter of Second Samuel. Now, remember, it was one book of Samuel originally. But those scrolls, I mean, if you just had one giant scroll, it would be more like, uh, you know, too heavy to lift, so they had to split the books so that they could <laughs> carry the scrolls around. Now, when a dignitary died on the battlefield, they would look to get him off right away because they knew the other side would abuse, abuse him. The Philistines would love to have beaten David to the body of Goliath so that David couldn't do, you know, hack his head off and, and carry it, but they, they were unable to. And that is the case here. The troops that scattered and, and retreated left the hill, and uh, there was nobody to take the bodies away. Verse 9, And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. The Amalekite probably said, All I need is a crown and the rings, and I'm good. Or maybe, you know, maybe the robe, but the armor, he had no use for that, so he leaves it. Um, Perhaps his name was Haney, Mr. Haney. He could sell these things (laughs) for those of you of greener acres. Anyway, this is payback. Uh, David did this to Goliath, and they're doing this to Saul. Uh, Saul's body, they're going to take it. They're going to hang it from a wall. They're going to stick his head in their temple. And uh, this is similar to David. First Chronicles 10, and we'll comment on this again. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Uh, It's the same Dagon that was toppled over when they had the ark and they found his head and hands on the floor, that same fake god. And so here, when they strip Saul of his armor, they're going to put his head as a trophy. Their god has brought this battle, they think, but Samuel called it. It's not their victory. Verse 10, then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body on the wall at, 
of Beth Shan. Uh, again, payback for David. First Samuel 17, verse 54. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and put his armor in his tent. So David was busy. Hacks the head off, takes the armor. It's pretty heavy. Uh, he's got to lug that and the head. And then he's got to salt the head or else the flies would be overwhelming. Uh, I, maybe they had, you know, a glass case. No, they did not. Uh, anyhow, the sword of David, where does that end up? It ends up in the temple because David goes to the temple. And so this is what they, what they did back then. And the Philistines are now doing it. It's their turn to gloat. Mount Gilboa is about seven miles from Beth Shan. Where they, uh, so that's how far they travel with it. And that kind of enters into the story because the men of Jabesh Gilead are going to rise up and retrieve the body of Saul. And uh, we'll come to that now. They're about 10 miles from Beth Shan. So not a lot of, not too far for these things to take place. Verse 11, now, <clears throat> when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had done, what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabeth and burned them there. <laughs> Reading this, say all the valiant men arose. What did the invalent? <laughs> That's probably not a word, invalent. Uh, but what are the men that weren't so brave doing? Uh, they probably all got up and said, let's go, boys. These men of Jabesh Gilead, uh, they had been delivered from the threats of an Ammonite king, King Naash, Years ago, when Saul first became king, his first challenge was this threat. You know, we're going to take out the eyes of all the men of Jabesh Gilead. If you surrender and we'll conquer you. And they send to Saul, we need help. And Saul goes and he, he fights and he wins. They never forgot that. Um, it was Saul's first military battle. Is probably his only decent thing he really did. And really his motive wasn't Yahweh, Saul, you know. Uh, although Yahweh inspired him. So they want to honor the memory of Saul for delivering them. And again, just 10 miles away. But it says they traveled all night. So it's a night mission. They know that the Philistines, they, they've defeated any foe. That There's no foe to really worry about having vanquished the, Jew, the Jews earlier. And uh, they're all going to be sleeping. And the men of Jabesh Gilead, they know that. And uh, here, it is good to point out, even though I don't agree with these, well, you can't fault them for saying, hey, you know, Saul delivered us, and and we owe him a little more honor in his death. You know, I don't fault them them for that. No other city in Israel raised a finger to save the body of Saul from desecration. But these men remembered his kindness Uh, From years gone by, they knew of his wickedness also. But in gratitude to the deed, they put their lives at risk. And uh, they all went to the stronghold of the Philistines and they got the job done. And that brings us to the topic of loyal volunteers. I mean, there are disloyal volunteers. There are volunteers that pretend to be loyal, and they're really not, but then there are those that are genuine, and those I'd like to just talk about, because the world will tell you, well, there's one military person gets the credit for saying, don't be the first, don't be the last, and whatever you do, don't volunteer. 
I don't want to be a foxhole mate with him. I don't want to be a shipmate with that guy. Uh, he's a minimalist. You know, you just don't over, you know, don't, you know, okay, don't, don't get on their radar and be the last guy. But whatever you do, don't be the best either. And don't volunteer. Well, that might be true in the world with the world's commanders. I've been under leaders that I wouldn't volunteer to do anything with. But then I've been under others that it would, it would be a, an honor to volunteer to do something they requested. Volunteers are needed to do the dirty work. The job no one else wants to do that needs to be done or should be done, and this is the case with the men of Jabesh Gilead. The assignment that others avoid, they take on. This is pointed out in the Psalms when it comes to the righteous and now serving the king. Psalm 110, verse 3, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that is set in the context of the coming Christ. Your people, speaking about the, the, the Christ, the Messiah, your people shall be volunteers. In the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness. Well, the days of his power, in one sense, are they begin when we become born again. We are in the days of his power. Volunteers are an asset if they are capable. They are a liability if they're not. You know, somebody who can't drive, volunteering to drive you somewhere, that doesn't worry, you know what, I'll walk. Uh, but if, when they are capable... They most certainly are an asset. So let's talk about some of the volunteers from Scripture. And there are quite a few, but we'll, we'll, we'll just do all of them. <laughs> There's Hannah. Okay, she volunteered somebody else for the mission. But she suffered too. She volunteered her son, her firstborn. The one she wanted so badly, she gave him away to the Lord. I mean, you just can't top that. David himself, who is this Philistine? I'll take him out. He volunteered. He went forward. Abishai, David's comrade. We, we've read about Abishai. Like David says, who will go with me down to the camp? I'll go with you, David. I've got your back. Itai, the Gittite, we've talked about him. Wherever you are, my king, there I'll be too. Life or death. Even ruthless Joab. Uh, Joab was a great guy as long as you did not give him a reason to kill you. And it didn't take much. Uh, but he still, you know, I, who will climb up the well at, Jeru at Jabus, which would be Jerusalem, and open the gate for us? And Joab says, I'll do it. And he had to go up, you know, sort of vertical, feet on one side of the wall, of the well wall, and hands on the other side. And he was a tough guy. They were the water boys of Bethlehem. When David said, I, could, I would love a drink from Bethlehem. I'm from Bethlehem. But the Philistines have a garrison there. And they, they didn't say anything. They just went and got the job done. They come back with the water. David couldn't drink. I can't drink this. I cannot. Just in a good conscience. You men risked your blood so that I could have water. Isaiah the prophet. God says, who will I send? I said, I'll go. However, God was a, God didn't tell him they're going to not like you for this message. If God didn't say, here's the message, who will deliver it? God says, I have a message, who will deliver it? And Isaiah says, I'll do it. And God says, okay, say to them, woe unto them. How to win friends and influence people. Um, Obadiah, the servant of Ahab, the wicked king. You know, Elijah, he pronounced a drought and he left. And God hid him. He says, go by the book, Kiriath. 
And there the ravens brought him bread and brought him uh, uh, meat, roadkill. I mean, what? the ravens don't usually kill anything. I mean, they kill small chicks or something like that, but uh, that's roadkill of some sort. I would have gone, ew, I'm not, I'm not eating that bread from a bird's mouth. Those birds are dirty. Just get a birdcage. You'll find out. Anyway, uh, God hides the prophet there. The well dries up. So again, what, you know, keeping him dependent. And he takes him to the widow. And then it gets worse. The kid dies of the widow. Man of God, have you come here? And just what a story. Anyhow, so then God then says to Elijah, okay, I'm going to end the drought. I want you to show up to the king. And the, the king and Obadiah said, we're going to have to find food uh, so we don't have to kill the horses and find, you know, just find food. And so the, you go in this direction, I'll go to this one. And, and, and so they go. Well, Obadiah, as he's looking, he comes across Elijah the prophet. And what does Elijah say? Elijah says, go tell the king, Elijah is here. Just like that. Elijah is here. Just tell him my name. And in the Hebrew, it's just Elijah. And Obadiah says, no way, because you're going to send me, Elijah's here, and I go, and you go, God leads you who knows where. That's what he says. God will lead you who knows where. And then the king will kill me, because we have searched everywhere for you, because you brought the drought. So Elijah says, as the Lord lives, I'll be here. But before they get to that, I'll be here. Obadiah says, haven't you heard what I've done for the servants of the Lord, risking my own neck? Hiding 50 to a cave, bringing them bread and water. You know how hard it is to feed 50 men in a cave and not bring attention to yourself? Why would you put me in a situation where Ahab's going to kill me? And Elijah, you know, tough Elijah, dressed, you know, leather and stuff and calling fire down on armies. <laughs> and he says, you know, go on. I'm, I'm not going to go anywhere. And he says, there's a tender moment, the only tender moment of Elijah. <laughs> no, it's not. But... Obadiah the servant volunteered to keep the prophets alive who Jezebel was having killed. Another volunteer in Scripture. Then we get to the New Testament. Of course, Peter. Lord, I'll step out in that water. I mean, he volunteered to do that in front of everybody. And he was doing pretty good there for a while. I mean, it's like a cartoon. You know, when they walk off the cliff and they keep walking until they realize... (laughs) They're not on the cliff anymore. Then they fall, and it's always puzzled me as a kid. Why didn't they just walk down to the ground? Uh, No. Anyhow, Looney Tunes are real stories. (laughs) So Peter, of course, uh, always volunteering the first word. Uh, And again, if you the value of that is take Peter's words out of your New Testament. You have to then take the answers of the Lord with them and how cheated we would be. Thomas, the, the one that everybody says is doubtful, and I don't agree with that. Uh, that's, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, he had his doubts of who didn't. Anyway, Thomas says, he volunteers, he says, let us go to Jerusalem that we can die with him. So. I mean, who says that but a, a man of faith at that moment, at least? Of course, Paul volunteered to go everywhere. <laughs> everywhere said, they're going to stone you and they're going to arrest you, Paul, but I got to go there anyway. And Paul, of course, the 
consummate volunteer of the New Testament. Onesiphorus, Paul said of Onesiphorus, he sought me out. I was in jail in the big city. And there are many jails in the big city. And Onesiphorus made sure he found me. He must have gone to how many jails? Paul here? No, next one. Until he found him. And Paul never forgot that and pronounced a blessing on his home. Epaphroditus is probably the pastor at Colossae. And when the heresy started creeping in, people mixing Christianity with other junk that they still do, uh, he goes off to Paul and he tells Paul what's happening. And Paul pens the, the, the letter of the, to the Colossians. You're complete in him. Which uh, evidently a lot of Christians don't get that. And he tells them about the philosophies of the world. And today Christians get very upset with you for daring to go against the philosophies of the world that have been put the, you know, the, the Jesus ribbon on it. So now it's no longer the world. It's ours. How's that work? Anyway, okay. Then, of course, the Lord, the greatest volunteer of them all. I'll get him out of that. Now, there is one that was not a volunteer, and that was Moses. Moses told God, we've got time, too. <laughs> this is one of the favorite stories in, in Exodus. I just love it. Uh, now, therefore, God speaking to Moses, Exodus 4 Go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. See, I bet you Elijah was thinking that was going to be, it was, I mean, Isaiah, and it was. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. <laughs> Just send anybody but me. <laughs> I, I mean, you got to love that guy because Moses was edu highly educated. He had tried to deliver his people. He found out what people were all about. He was disillusioned. He thought they would rally with him. And he found they turned against him. So he said, I don't know anymore. I'm done. I'm going out as far as I can get from Egypt. I'll stay with the sheep up on some mountain somewhere. I don't care if there's somebody else's sheep, just as long as I'm not around people. <laughs> and then God sets something on fire, and Moses is nosy. So he goes, <laughs> not nosy, but he's, I, you know, I will go and see this thing. And, and, that's, and God traps him. And... <laughs> <laughs> so it's um, you have to serve the Lord to see the humor in these things and the realities that go along unless you want to be all pious yes Lord what can I do for you yeah talk to me at 20 years later uh, after you have been doing for the Lord and tell me if you still have that moonstruck face on your look on your face it's like well anyway um, no I serve with joy I do but also with Reality. Um, anyway, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Now, I'd like to remind the Lord of that. It was kindled against Moses, not Rick. <laughs> anyway, and he said, then he goes on to say, you know, okay, fine, take Aaron. <laughs> so I just love that story. Uh, don't you? Uh, well, so anyway, it's one thing to sign up. It's another thing to show up. And the names that I just read, the exception of Moses. <laughs> Moses, again, one of the greatest of them all. Just the beauty of the story is this reluctant servant became one of the greatest of them all. And no, no, um, 
no shame in the life of Moses overall. Though he, he, and he blundered again, you know, he blundered again with his, why wouldn't circumcise a kid? Just Moses, what are you doing? He was almost a rookie at serving. What did I know? So to sign up and show up to this day, we have volunteers. I know in this church, uh, they stationed themselves where they said they were going to be and they get it done. These kind of things need to be preached. Uh, and it says here at the bottom of verse 12, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. So they cremated the bodies, but they could not get the pyre hot enough to burn the bones. To this day, even the cremation, there are parts of bones that make it through. I mean, he's like, all right, we had the gory stuff with the head hanging over the wall and all the other. Don't, don't go there. But it's just a fact. Uh, easy to believe for any naysayer that thinks this is a fantasy book. Verse 13, then they took the bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Years later, David's going to come up and dig these bones up and plant them in Benjamin's territory. Uh, we'll get that in uh, 2 Samuel 21. The fasting, of course, there are different types of fasts. Example, uh, there could have been, you know, no food till sundown. It's not likely they didn't eat for all seven days. There are different types of fast in Scripture. Uh, just because, you know, we see... Elijah go 40 days without nights, without food or water, um, and the Lord go 40 without food. We tend to think that all fasting is no food, no water, but that is not accurate. Uh, anyway, a solemn affair. Uh, the afterword to all of this, this being the last verse, is, and I'm, I, in one sense I'm happy to be done with Saul, but on the other side, I, if I were to have preach it again, I, I would change nothing. Maybe some of the jokes. <laughs> uh, but in First Chronicles chapter 8, there's the genealogy, begins the genealogy of, of Saul. And uh, this passes over his life. It just gives you the genealogy. And Saul came from this one, and this one came from that one. And it's a tragic story, but the part that is told is this his death. They pass over his life and they tell you about his shameful death. And you have to read that. Say, I don't want to be that guy. And you have to tell the unbeliever, do you want to be this guy before God? He's a man who exhibited no desire to stand against his own flesh. It's one thing to say, I'm going to stand against my flesh and fail. God will embrace that sinner. But to say, I, I ain't got time for that. I got other things to do. That's what Esau was doing. That's what Saul, how he lived. And so with all the true things to me that I pointed out about Saul, just even reading them from the scripture, the men at Jabesh Gilead might have challenged me and said, well, you know, Saul, he, he came to our rescue. That's fine. But the, the, the survivors of Nob, they would challenge them back and say, yeah, well, he slaughtered us. Don't expect us to go retrieve his bones. And this is how we look at, we try to find the balance. This is a more tragic ending than Samson. Now, Samson was a tragic. Samson would be in heaven. He had great faith at times, but he battled his, his flesh. There's a, one of my favorite. I don't. If a poem doesn't rhyme, it shouldn't be a poem. I mean, I don't care about verse and all that. Else. It, it got a rhyme. <laughs> and some of these, you know, these older guys in their commentaries, they like to quote a lot of old poetry, and to me, it's like boring. I don't get it. There's no rhyme going with it. Um, why don't you just write a story if you're not going to rhyme? 
But there's one that I really like, Maud Muller. I, I like the whole song, but there's, there's one sad part in the poem. The whole poem is sad, they, you know, anyway. Of all the sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest are these it might have been. That's what you could say over that would have been his epitaph. It might he could have been a great king, but he opted out. And again, that's part of our message to the lost souls. We are ordered by the Lord Jesus to love our enemies in the sense of not wanting to see them go to hell, in the sense of volunteering to be part of any process God might use us to lead them to salvation, to never withhold the gospel from them unless the Lord orders us, and sometimes he does shut us, tell us to be quiet. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were forbidden from going into Asia and bringing the gospel. That was for someone else to do. And so uh, our stops and our goes, they are ordered by God. And as we look at the story of Saul, uh, it's easy to start hating the men. You have to catch yourselves. Um, all of us, when some, somebody can push us in life to almost hate them if we're not careful. And uh, that would uh, make us haters, not lovers of Christ. We would hate them like Satan hates them. And... Satan hates our Lord, and we'll have none of that. So we suffer instead, and we labor, and we focus on whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, lovely, of good report. Unbridled weak, uh, well, unbridled weakness, but that's not what I want to say. Unbridled hatred is not Christianity. There are other religions that have that. Here's a picture in Acts chapter 8. This is Saul. After he heard the sermon of Stephen, he couldn't get it out of his head. He was enraged. How dare that man shoot down Judaism and no one could refute him. So Saul's response was, let's get rid of the Christians. And so Acts chapter 8, verse 3, as for Saul, who was, would become Paul the apostle, not King Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging men and women off, committing them to prison. He hated them. That's not us. Paul then, later, year after his conversion, writes to Titus. He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. When that one another, as Paul is using it, he's not saying one another Christian. He's one another human being. And so, of course, his conversion, he's no longer this person that wreaks havoc on the church. He wreaked havoc on hell by not being full of hatred. He could have said to his persecutors, you know, that uh, he hoped they go to hell. He would never say such a thing. Except for these chains, I wish you were all like me. And so we come to Christ and we disapprove of hatred yeah, so sometimes we slip and he may come out. And we go, Lord, that's not what I meant. And the Lord knows our hearts, and that's vital. This Saul, the sad life, is what he chose to make it because he chose to go in the opposite direction of Christ. He entered into Satan's reasons for living. He could not say with the psalmist in Psalm 91, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. He could not say that. It came near him in final judgment. 
He could not say with the apostle, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He couldn't say. David could say that at the end of his life. Saul could not. What is the good fight? It's the fight that God has given us. And many of us um, are doing it. Many have suffered and died doing it. The good fight is the God-given fight. And it's worth it. It is worth it. If so if that's why Jesus said, count on all joy when they persecute you and say all things, ma- manner of things against you falsely for my name's sake. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, I've said this a lot. I don't like it any more than you. I'm not supposed to. But I know my duty and so do you know your duty. Let's pray. Our Father, the tragic end of a man is held up before us so that we could ponder our own existence, our own service. We thank you for preserving such lessons. They are very meaningful to us, and so we are very grateful to you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you, our Father, in Jesus' name, amen.